Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malaman. And I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was now that I talk to Elliot regularly. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. Okay, Yossi, I want to talk about Tu Bishvat as one of the weirdest Jewish holidays. I know that you're supposed to sort of love all Jewish holidays, but I feel this is a botched holiday. I'll tell you why. So it comes in the middle of January. Sorry, sorry, sorry. When is Tu Bishvat? Tu Bishvat is in the middle of January. It's the 15th day of the month of Shvat, which usually falls out in the middle of winter when you're not... And it's the birthday of the trees. That's okay. what you're celebrating. But you don't really think about trees in the middle of the winter. Even in Israel, it's like rainy. You're not really thinking about trees. It's supposed to celebrate the fact that the trees are coming to life again after sort of a period of hibernation. But if we wanted to do the holiday right... You wouldn't just sort of mention it in davening or, you know, talk about it in some abstract way. You'd have like massive sort of trips of Jews out into nature and sort of experiencing real nature. This, this, is, a, this is a situation where the theory of the holiday is not matched by the practice because people are celebrating Tu Bishvat often kind of indoors, certainly in North America, probably because it's in the north, it's snowy, but... My point being that this is one of those holidays that I think needs a creative reboot. Um, not just something you sort of mention, but like if we're serious about trees. So let's learn about trees. Let's learn about natural things. Okay, well, Elliot, look, maybe this is actually part of our personalities where we, we see trees differently in the winter. You live in Israel. Right. I live here. Right. You're right. Mid-February, something interesting is happening, though. The sap is starting to run in the trees. It is. For those of us who take a closer look at trees, I'm not saying you don't, but in Israel you don't have maples, I don't think at all. certainly don't have a maple syrup industry. Generally, it's the northeastern United States. The sap starts to run as the days get longer, and the days get warmer, the nights are frozen, the days could be above freezing, and mm. saps are... So the truth is the trees are coming alive around Tu B'Shvat, legitimately. So it... While the thought was always that it was about in Israel that the weather is changing, right. the truth is, if you look closely at where you live in this part of North America, you can find that same inspiration. So here's what I like about what you're saying, which is you're, you're talking about the idea that the renewal is inside first. That's right. right. The sap is sort of... You don't even see it. You don't see it. It's kind of reaching a, a crucial point, and it's going to then burst onto the scene. So I think that's a good metaphor, really, for inner growth. And I think that we somehow have to make a good connection here spiritually between growth that you see in nature and growth that you see in the inner human being. So this would be a good opportunity to merge those two kinds of so growth. I want to extend my metaphor a little bit a little bit more. That is that sap that comes out of a tree is 2% sugar content. You basically have to boil and evaporate it in order to get to what we grade A, B, or C, maple syrup. And the quality of the syrup depends on how effective you are in boiling, how quickly you get it to the evaporator. You have to, you have to do it properly. There, there isn't, it's a science, really. But the truth is, like anything else, we have an abundance of life, an abundance of words, an abundance of thoughts, an abundance of, of joy. We have an abundance in our lives if we're lucky. And if we're not, we can work towards it. But that abundance, most of it seems 
banal or mundane. Part of it is distilling the syrup or the sap in your life into something sugar-based. Just as a on a complete tangent, one of the challenges, we were talking earlier about putting kosher certification on massive amount of food products. One of the great problems with maple syrup is that when you're boiling off maple syrup, it tends to foam. And the foam is, it's hard to manage it. It's significant. The traditional way of dealing with the foam was to throw an agent into it that would stop the foam, which is often lard. Ah. And of course the lard evaporates in the, in the, the maple syrup. But this is why maple syrup, for those who are observant or vegetarian or vegan, right. needs a hechsher, needs to be kosher because, or needs to be certified vegetarian, vegan, etc., like we call secular kosher, because otherwise it could have something in they need it. They've, so they've come up with other defoaming agents. I was at a farmer's market once and I said, what do they use to defoam the, uh, the maple syrup? He says, are you kosher or, or vegan? I said, a little both. But it was a fascinating conversation. He learns that maple syrup is a very traditional, it's ancient. Obviously, indigenous Canadians or Americans knew about this a long time ago. I love that image, though. Think of that image, right? You've got this thing that you're trying to produce, and one of its side effects is excess, right? It's like foaming over. And you got to find out, like, how do I deal with my excess? Like, what agent do I put in myself that will... Get me to the point where it works, where I'm not just like foaming over all the time. We have balance. You know, where you have balance. Yeah. And, you know, if it's the wrong agent, if it's like, quote unquote, the lard in you. So it's, it, it, which almost reminds me of like this kind of artificial way of bringing you down, right? Where you, you, you know, you're drugging yourself or whatever you're doing to kind of get yourself back in balance. And you have to find the right ingredient, like literally, to make this maple syrup work and be sweet. It's fascinating. But it, and... Just to, to finish the thought about kashrut, the problem with lard specifically is that because it's so prohibited, even though it is completely nullified in the volume of the, uh, the maple syrup, because it's such an important ingredient, it's davar, you know, ikar, it's so significant, you cannot ignore it. In other words, if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have the product. Right. So this is part of the... The, the metaphor, which is what you use in your life to manage yourself, can unhinge you. It can negatively impact you if you use the right ingredient. But that ingredient is so critical, you can't ignore it. Right. And that ingredient falls into the category of the hope for spring or renewal, the ability to cope with death and destruction with optimism. It leads you to a belief that there's better days ahead. It's finding ways to enjoy the darkness and the cold. Whatever your winter looks like, because in Israel the winter is not quite what it looks like in North America or the northern part, parts of uh, the continent or Europe, but still everybody goes through this decline and reemergence <coughs> and so on, and that's really the story. Now, for sure, just the lack of light, I mean, I think lack of light is, is very affecting. I, I actually feel on the non-metaphorical level, here I have a point to make about Jewish education and to be shvat. See, to me, this is an example of where you need to throw out the playbook. Jewish schools are really, all schools, but Jewish schools as well, are hyper-focused on curriculum. Curriculum achievement towards an end, right? Towards final testing of some kind. And with to be shvat, I think you, what you should really be doing as, as a Jewish school is say, there's no school today. Forget it. There are no books today. We're going out. Even if it's cold, even if it's wintry, plan a trip, go out, 
see trees, let kids roll around in the snow, talk to them about some of the ideas that we've been talking about in terms of like what nature is to a human being and what renewal is and, and try and examine ideas like that. Two things I want to add to that is some of my favorite memories of my very intense ultra-Orthodox upbringing were the field trips, which were rare. Second thing was every once in a while, one of our rabbis, our Rebbe, would participate. When our Rebbe was hiking with us in his long black coat and getting dirty, climbing up the hill where we are, when I I remember in my mind, I have an image of a, a Rebbe being one of us. And that was probably one of the most important dates. I remember day camp was also a man we admired, literally just getting in the river, walking through it. It was that. And I actually, not to disagree with you, I would want more. I think there should be an outward bound program for Tubishvat. Yeah. They yeah. learn not to be afraid of nature yeah. or cold and get out of there. Now, fine, you can go to a yurt and, and have a, a wonderful experience, but it does not have to be where it's book learning or we learn about, like, for example, Tubishvat does have that deep religious significance, sort of within the life cycle, which is not particularly religious. But the four Rosh Hashanahs, Rosh Hashanah of Nisan, which is the first month of the year for holidays, that's when the calendar begins, Nisan, which is Passover, it's the first holiday. Then there's Elul, which is for tithing, where you determine which animal was born in what year, what fruit was, what you have to tithe, because you'd have to take the 10% or the, the firstborn of whatever. And the second one is Tish, third third Tishrei. Tish, right? People right. are familiar with New Year for people and the world, so to speak. And the fourth, which is fascinating too, is Tubishvat, which is for trees and nature. Now, I do want to say something that I don't want to go through at length here, but I offer people the opportunity to take the second paragraph of the prayer Shema. The first prayer is, the first line is familiar. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Second is, you shall love the Lord your God. The third one, which is from the book of Number, of, uh, no, it's Deuteronomy, it's Parshat Akev, I think. V'hayayim Shemoa, and it will be if you listen to my commandments. And what's really interesting to me is, it goes on to say something that really needs careful analysis. If you listen to my commandments, you'll have rain. If you listen to my commandments, the earth will give its produce. You'll have health, you'll have wealth, etc. And if you don't, all that will be reversed. I see that as the way the ancients spoke about environmentalism. If you are a good person and you treat the earth fairly and your neighbor fairly, if you pollute the river, you're polluting your neighbor's river. If you pollute the land, you're polluting your future generation's land. But if you're an honest person, you don't do those things. If you're honest when no one's looking, you don't do those. If you treat the land with respect, you don't over-cultivate, you don't over-till, you don't over-harvest, you do all the right practices. Think of what happened in the Dust Bowl, the greatest man-made disaster of land ever, primarily because, yes, nature has an impact, primarily because of bad practices. Think of when I was down in Guanacaste in uh, Costa Rica, all the land that was deforested now is being used for sugar production, which takes whatever remaining water there is and puts it into massive sugar production, and there's no rain anymore. It's become almost arid. And part of that is because they eliminated the rainforest, which traps moisture and creates a a cycle. I believe the second paragraph of Shema is a call to environmental behavior in which 
it's not God turning a switch on and off if you do the commandments. If you don't follow the good practices of life, you will live in an environment that you have lost control over because you've destroyed it. But if you change that pattern, you can restore land and be healthy. I'd, I'd like to see the first paragraph of Shema. Well, the first is declarative. Here's one God. Please don't waste your time. Let's move on. Then it's love, learning, etc. children, environmentalism. The third is memory and obligation to remember responsibilities. So when I don't disagree with your comments about the environment, I would say that the way I read the second paragraph is a kind of philosophy of Judaism, which is that there's a stewardship that God gives human beings, that we've been given the earth. We didn't build it. We didn't invent it. We were given it, and we're there to, as he tells the first human, you're here to guard it and to work it. In other words, to protect it. So protection of the earth is actually one of the central meets vote that we have. And I know when people hear that, they think, oh, that's, you know, that's kind of hippy-dippy, right? That's that's a sort of modern take. No, that's actually inherent in the text itself from the beginning of the Bible, which is that taking care of the world you live in is not just common sense, and it's not just um, prevention from us liquidating ourselves. It's the first command. It's what we're here to do, because without it, everything else is going to go. Right? There are things that you can sort of buy now, pay later, but the earth isn't one of those things. It's you gotta, you're going to be paying for it until there's nothing to pay for anymore because we'll have destroyed it. Let's end with one of the great lyrics of the forest. You bet. There's unrest in the forest. There's trouble with the trees. For the maples want more sunlight and the oaks ignore their pleas. The trouble with the maples, and they're quite convinced they're right, they say the oaks are just too lofty and they grab up all the light. But the oaks can't help their feelings if they like the way they're made. And they wonder why the maples can't be happy in their shade. There is trouble in the forest and the creatures have all fled. As the maples scream, oppression! And the oaks just shake their heads. So the maples formed a union and demanded equal rights. The oaks are just too greedy. We will make them give us light. Now there's no more oak oppression for they passed a noble law, and the trees are all kept equal by hatchet, axe, and saw. Friends, the brilliant words of Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, Neil Peart, Rush, the trees. Take a listen if you get a chance. Happy Tubishvat, everyone. I hope the renewal of your life is sweet as sugar. Elliot, we're done. I'm sorry for screaming at you for the last half hour, but it was, I learned something. That's okay. I don't mind you screaming. Did you learn anything? I learned that you screamed at me a little bit. <laughs> I want to thank everyone who listened. Please send us your feedback at hello at livingjewishly.org. We would absolutely love to hear from you. 